Alright, well if you could begin making your way back to your seats, grab your Bibles, and you're going to want to head over to 1 Kings chapter 11. Now you're going to find 1 Kings because it's directly before 2 Kings, and uh, chapter 11 is uh, not a form of bankruptcy this morning that we're going to look at. It's just a place to find that. Uh, and we've got to have puns this morning, right? Because we all know what the bulletin says and what the sign says. We're all feeling a little nervous about this, okay? So you might feel nervous, but I'll tell you what, your mother-in-law is not here, okay? That's me, all right? So uh, there's perhaps a little bit extra added pressure there, but it's been kind of funny because John puts the next week's sermon titles on the sign out front, and you get the whole week to see them. Like, people have been grumbling as they walk by. It's been hilarious to just people in the neighborhood walking by, going up to rudders, whatever. Like, we can overhear them interacting with this sign and with each other. Uh, And it's just been quite comical, to be real honest with you. But this morning, we're going to try to unpack what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But we're going to go to 1 Kings 11 to begin with, and hopefully that will make good sense for you as we get into it. Uh, But this morning, we, we will put our focus and attention on really one of the questions that should legitimately be asked when we consider the fact that Solomon was a man who was led by the Lord to write Scripture. Because what we're going to read in just a moment in 1 Kings 11 says that things went really, really badly at the end of his life. Why should we pay attention to what this man has to say when he really seems like he disregarded the majority of what the Lord had to say? Those are really, really fair questions. They're legitimate questions. And in many ways, there's not necessarily real satisfying answers other than the fact we can trace through Solomon's life and see compromises along the way for whatever reasons that led him to a place in time at the end of his reign and the end of his life when his heart was far from the Lord, the kingdom that he had led in unified fashion as really the only king in Israel's history to ever lead the kingdom completely unified was to be broken and stripped away from him. Things end really, really badly for Solomon. In a lot of ways, the end of his life begins in, in, in is a don't do that type of moral tale. But I also think Solomon realized it. And I think what we will see in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is Solomon is actually going to turn his focus and his attention on what he aimed to do in finding satisfaction through sex and through women. And how that ended up yielding the exact same vanity that he found as he sought it through wisdom, as he sought it through wealth, as he sought it through hard work, as he sought it through every other aspect of life that he has turned his focus and attention on. And if we just pause and consider briefly how maybe the three books that Solomon wrote interact with one another, this would be what I would believe and have convictions regarding that the book of Song of Solomon is really his greatest hits album. I believe he wrote about a thousand and five different love songs. The Song of Songs ends up being the greatest hit CD for all of the songs that he wrote. And like a greatest hit CD, it doesn't necessarily follow chronologically. It's just, it's just kind of what comes. But you really can see that, and I think it's best understood in the context of this was his first marriage. Song of Songs is a celebration of covenant love. It's a celebration of God's intent for a marriage relationship of one man, one woman covenanting in love together until death. And it's a celebration of that. And you have the book of Proverbs being compiled throughout Solomon's life and written with just a lot of proverbial wise sayings along the way. And he gives very, very clear and explicit instruction that we'll even look at this morning in regards to staying away from 
the adulteress and, and prizing and cherishing your wife. And, and we should pause and go, well, what made him not actually do that? Because he had good wisdom and good counsel and good advice. His actions were very different. And then you have the book of Ecclesiastes written at the end of Solomon's life, which I believe is where he begins to look back and reflect on his own life and observe the lives of those in his kingdom. And he begins to make these conclusions time and time again that if you search for and seek after anything to fulfill you and satisfy you that is not first and foremostly the Lord, you will be greatly disappointed. And that is what we get in our text this morning. But if you seek after and pursue first and foremostly the Lord, every other thing has its place and has what the Lord intended for it to be. So let's pray. We'll look at 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll consider some things culturally together briefly, and then we'll hop into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and consider what he has to say in verses 25 to 29. But let's go before the Lord. Father God, we are grateful that you give honest pictures of the men you chose to use, of the women you chose to use. That in this book, in your word, there is only one perfect man. And yet, you chose to use a whole bunch of imperfect people. And you, you, you redeemed the lives of, of prostitutes and you used them for your glory. And you redeemed the lives of pagan worshipers and child sacrificers. And you chose to use them for your glory. And, and Lord, you, you've used a man here who we can rightly conclude it did not end well. And in spite of his imperfections, you use him to give counsel and wisdom so God, we thank you for that. I, I thank you that there's an honesty in your word, that the, the, it's, not a, it's not a collection of, of thousands of perfect people. There's one perfect person, and there's a whole bunch of imperfect people being used by you. God, I pray that you would encourage us with that truth and reality, that you call us to submit our lives to the one perfect man, and be willing and ready to be used by you in spite of our imperfections. And so Lord, as we consider these matters this morning and the matters of, of sex and what Solomon has to say as he looks back over his life and how that fits into our world culturally today, Lord, help us to think well. Help us to think clearly. God, I pray just for a freedom in this room this morning for you to work and move and do what you need to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, historically, throughout history, there's really been three main positions that people have taken in regards to sex. One of them is they have seen it as something to be worshipped, or even something you worship through. And ancient religions had gods and goddesses that you would worship through sexual practices, and they themselves took the form and the shape of different reproductive organs. We're going to think about that, because Ecclesiastes 11 actually says just that much as well. Not Ecclesiastes chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11. But so sex has, in one sense, been worshipped. And there's even cultural anthropologists that exist in our day that see sex for Americans as nothing other than that. It is something that you worship. It is something that you can get in touch with the spiritual through. And we need to just kind of pause and, and ponder that for a moment because when cultural anthropologists are saying the same things as biblical Christians from a completely different worldview, we should pay attention to that. Because they don't realize it, but the conclusions they're making about these areas of life, and this area in particular, are conclusions that agree with Scripture. Because Scripture's going to say sex is a big deal. 
It's a big deal. In these cultural anthropologists, one of his name is Gary Latterman. I've got his book on my shelf. It's called Sacred Matters. It traces through 11 or 12 different areas in American cultural life that people worship through. Money, celebrity worship, fame, fortune, I guess fortune's money, sex, sports. I mean, he just traces all the way through. It's a fascinating read from a cultural anthropological perspective. But here you have somebody making the same conclusions as the Bible does from a completely secular worldview. It doesn't take long for us to realize that you don't have to look real far either to realize that sex is worship. Well, another major perspective throughout history, and it's certainly to be found in today, but it might have been found a little bit more in prior days, was that sex was gross. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to think about it. It's a bit taboo. We're not going to have anything really to do with it. And just let me read to you a a quote from uh, a book by a Christian author that was recounting some church history, okay? Church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursday, the day of Christ's arrest, on Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, on Sundays, in honor of other departed saints. Wednesdays sometimes made the list, too, as did the 40-day rest period before Easter, fast period before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, also feast days in the days of the apostles. The list escalated until there were 44 days that remained that the church said you are now officially allowed as married couples to participate in this. So part of even the church's history is this idea that we have to stay so far away from this. And there's some just fascinating things from Victorian England where extreme modesty and utter silence took over. Women were not permitted to expose their ankles because such behavior would arouse passions. This attitude was so prevalent in Victorian society, the legs of furniture were covered so that table legs would not arouse impure thoughts. I mean, can you imagine living in that society? And there's a lot of legs exposed in our church chairs that we have here. Like if we look and there's like, there's 198 impure thoughts being aroused here because of our chairs that we have. I mean, if there was ever a reason to bring back the pews, there we go. There it is. But that was a Victorian England perspective, this perspective that it's gross. Well, the third, I think, is probably the most biblical perspective out of the three and that it's a gift. That it's a gift by God to men and women They were made and designed and created with unique and complementary parts so that they may glorify him through their relationship and accomplish the goal and purpose he had for them in their relationship. And this aspect of our lives is so unique because it intersects with virtually every aspect of our personhood. Because in the realm and when looking at matters of sexuality, you have the physical You have the emotional, you have the intellectual, you have the relational, and you most certainly have the spiritual. This is part of the reason why you cannot just conclude that sex outside of God's way is harmless. And I've had this argument in discussion before with people who have wanted to claim such, and it's just a false claim. And it's one based on a deception that they're just trying and, and in choosing to not look at the reality that it is not just simply harmless. You are damaging yourself and others in, in five different major areas of your life. I mean, th- this, this issue, the issue of what we do with our bodies sexually is so unique because it intersects with what we do physically, relationally, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. And Solomon didn't get it. And 1 Kings 11 chases, traces for us what he didn't get. And beginning in verse 1, we're told, Now Solomon, King Solomon, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Kamash, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, the mountains on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did all for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now, despite the number 1,000, we want to look at something else just briefly here, because what happened in Solomon's heart being led to other foreign gods, if we allow our current cultural perspective to interpret that, we're going to be a little bit misinformed. Because there's a perspective that, and, and Kevin even touched upon it this morning in our CE class, the idea of, of coexist. And you've seen those bumper stickers around where there's kind of the major symbol of every world religion. And there's this idea that, that can be somewhat prevalent that, you know, we can take a little bit of Jesus and we can take a little bit of Buddha and give me a little bit of, of Allah. And, 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 and there's not necessarily for that person ascribing to that worldview a, a, a lot that's required from any one of those religious systems they want to follow. And so it is in part because they don't actually follow them wholly, but it's it just give me a little bit of each and I'm kind of good with all that I have. Well, that would not have been the case in these gods that Solomon built altars to. You can't have just a little bit of Asherah because you worship Asherah on a high place by taking a tree and carving it into the shape of a phallus and then having people go up to that mountain and perform sexual immorality underneath that tree that's shaped like the male reproductive organ. There's no tiptoeing around that. You're all in if that's where you decide to go. You don't all, you don't somehow loosely worship the god Kamash from Moab. Because you worshipped Kamash by sacrificing your children. You burned them. You threw them into the fire. Because that's how Kamash was appeased. Same as Molech. There's no, there's no like syncretism plurality here in what Solomon experienced. It wasn't just that he was alright with his... Wives having a little bit of, of, of Buddha and a little bit of Allah and, and just, you know, just, let's, let's just kind of all get along and, you know, we're not going not gonna to talk about religions and politics at dinner. We'll just, you know, have, have just kind of, no. You don't go and tiptoe around these things because of what these things required. And he built the altars. And so when the writer of First Kings is telling us that Solomon was given an instruction by the Lord to not take wives because they would turn his hearts away, that's indeed exactly what we see. And it didn't just turn his heart away in, in a sense of, well, okay, I'm going gonna, gonna to do some yoga, I'm going to pray, I'm gonna, and I like center myself with Buddha. Now he went all in. He built altars. Perhaps some of his own children were sacrificed. The sons and the daughters of these wives that he took as they go and worship their gods. I mean, there's an evil and a depravity at root here that we, that we have to understand because it, it speaks to what callousness and carelessness in this area of our lives can lead to. Not that if we find ourselves careless today, we'll sacrifice our children tomorrow. But you begin a life of carelessness and callousness in this area, and you're going to find 
20, 30 years down the road, you're in a very different spot than you ever thought you'd be. And you're going to find all five of those areas of your life significantly compromised. And so I think it's on that backdrop then we can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and consider then what Solomon had to say at the end of his life as he's observing the the results of the choices that he made, the experiences that he had, along with those that he observed throughout his kingdom. Now this passage is much more personal, it's much more intense in that way, and I think it comes much more out of his experience than it does his observations. So let's look at verse 25 together. Solomon writes, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. That word scheme there, I'm going to define for you, and it'll become important later, is the explanation of things. You may, you may have a schematic that you find somewhere along the lines. That's this word. It's a, a schematic tells you how everything works, and it explains to you what is going on. That's what Solomon's looking for. He wants to know, search, find wisdom, and the explanation of things. But he wants to know wickedness, and the wickedness of folly, and the foolishness that is madness. And here in verse 25, he gives us a statement very similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 17, where he turned his attention to search out wisdom and to search out foolishness, and to try and, and, and get an understanding of all of these things. And so he reiterates what his goal was, what his purpose was, what his aim was. He wanted to know and understand. And in verse 26, he begins to tell us what he finds. And I find something more bitter than death. Now just pause there for a minute, because consider what Solomon has said in regards to death at this point. For Solomon, death is the greatest vanity. It's the uncontrollable event that will happen to everyone. And nothing that you do before that moment is going to change the fact that that moment will occur. And so he says time and time again, all of these other vanities lead to this greatest vanity of death. And it doesn't matter how much money you invest and how much money you save and how wise you were or what pleasures you had or what laughter you in- enjoyed with others. One day it all is going to end and all of these things are vain, but they all lead to this greatest vanity. And even in his wisdom for us two weeks ago to live with death in mind, there's a, there's a sense of that, that the day is going to come. And you're better suited living with that reality in your mind than just ignoring it and pretending like it's not going to happen. So we just need to pause and understand that Solomon's, he's really upped the ante a little bit. Because to this point, death was the worst thing that could happen. And here now is something more bitter. He found something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. That word snares there refers to hunting traps. It refers to the traps more than likely spring-loaded that you would have opened up, and when an animal would have placed their foot in it, it would have snapped, it would have held them in that position. The word nets there refers to a fishing net. Probably very similar to what Jesus and the disciples in the first century would have thrown out. It would have had weights around the outside. And as the net gets cast into the sea, as they would fish, the weights would sink down to the bottom. And it would just trap all the fish that were in that. And they would pull them in. The word fetters is a word that refers to to probably what can be best thought of as iron shackles. Handcuffs. And we actually just sang that word earlier in the song, Come Thou Fount. Let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I mean, the the words of that verse in that song say, Lord, I'm prone to wander, handcuff me to you. That's what we sang, and that's what Solomon is saying. 
this woman whose heart is more bitter than death. She traps, she doesn't let go like a fishing net, she handcuffs. Now, I want to pause for a minute and just briefly touch on the fact that Solomon is a man, writing as a man, and so for him, the object of the seduction would have been a woman. We should rightly interpret this text to say that much. But we can rightly apply this text in a completely opposite way as well. So ladies, I don't want you to hear Solomon just condemning outrightly all women everywhere because they somehow found a way to seduce him. His condemnation is more for the one who is not willing to honor the Lord with their lives and honor covenant marriage. And so from his perspective, as a man, that took the form of women whose hearts were snares, nets, and fetters. We can apply this text in the opposite way. And culturally today, it needs to be thought of that way. One-third of all internet pornography users are women. Two-thirds are men. There seems to be a growing market for women to be ensnared via internet pornography just as much and in a growing degree as men have for decades. Some of you ladies were at the conference last week, the Break Every Chain, and you heard some of these statistics and you came back very passionate about them and, and I'm, I'm glad for that. Let me share some of these with the rest of you because internet pornography receives more internet traffic than Netflix Amazon and Twitter combined. So all that streaming that you do on Netflix and everybody else is doing on Netflix isn't touching a candle to the amount of streaming that internet pornography is taking place. In 2006, internet pornography generated more revenue than the MLB, Major League Baseball, the National Football League, and the National Basketball Association combined. In 2006, internet pornography was a $12 billion industry. $12 billion. It's estimated right now, and Michelle's done some great work, and even helping the men help think through this here recently, that, that human trafficking, and, and we probably could just put that into the, the whole sex industry, as it's currently now being correctly defined, is going to be a $32 billion business worldwide it will soon overtake drugs as the number one most profitable form of crime in the world. Heartbreakingly, devastatingly, child porn generates $3 billion annually. These are, these are serious issues for our culture. These are serious issues. And Solomon is saying what is more bitter than death is the woman or the man who's uncontent with this idea of one man, one woman, in love till death. And he had some tremendous, tremendous wisdom and exhortation for his boys in the book of Proverbs. Essentially, Proverbs 4 to, to about 7, 8, it's all about these young men avoiding these pitfalls. And he writes in Proverbs 5, helpfully for us, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, I also want to note, as we consider these things, that in this passage, and even Proverbs 7, when he specifically talks about the adulteress, woman, that Solomon is specifically referring to the act of seduction. 
In Proverbs 7, he tells his son, don't walk down by her house because she's going to stand outside her house and she's going to say things to invite you to come in and she's going to tell you that her husband has left town and he won't be back for a month or so and you have the opportunity to come and enjoy her and, and he's, he's taking aim at that act of seduction. He's not considering what led that woman to find herself in a place where she was willing to do that. You tracking with me? There's, there's two different things happening here. Some of the greatest work right now being done in combating human trafficking and internet pornography and all of this industry is what probably is best referred to as the humanizing of the people involved. You have organizations like She's Somebody's Daughter leading the way in some of these efforts because it's an, it's an effort to try to get you or whomever that is consuming this product to recognize this is a person. This is not an object. She's somebody's daughter. And the humanizing effort is a tremendous one and one that needs to continue. Solomon doesn't necessarily consider that in these texts. He considers the act of the seduction. He's saying that it's a trap. It's a trap. In verse 26, after he writes that her heart is more bitter than death, that it snares and nets, her hands are fetters. He makes a fascinating statement. And he says that he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. It's a fascinating statement because here you have put before us escape and captivity. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And I think we should spend some time considering what this looks like. For Solomon, to please God is to recognize his godness, to recognize who he is, to recognize who we are in light of who he is, and then to respond correctly. And we've seen that time and time again. He will conclude basically the entire book that he wrote in chapter 12, verse 13, to just say, you know what, the end of everything. Fear God, keep his commands. You want a summary of what it looks like to please God? Fear him, recognize his godness, and then obey him. And so it's with that definition that I think we can understand then what Solomon talks about, how the one who pleases God, the one who fears God, will escape this pitfall. So how does that look, and what does that look like, and how does that take place, and how does the Lord protect us and provide escape for us as we fear Him? Well, I think there's four different ways. It's probably not a compre comprehensive list, but four immediately came to mind this week as I was preparing. The first is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to follow well. How does the one who pleases God, who wants to obey the Lord, who wants to live his life in the pattern direction of obedience, how does he escape? Well, the Holy Spirit empowers him, her, to follow well. Now, we're going to dig into the Greek in this passage this coming fall as we step through Philippians, but we'll just read it this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. To do what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. God the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey, and I think we can see that empowerment increases as we continue to work out and desire obedience even more. So how does the one who pleases God escape this pitfall? Well, God himself is on our side. Secondly, God's word continually reveals to us what we should do 
and what we should not do. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I think I went KJV on you there. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So how does the one who fears the Lord, who wants to obey the Lord, who wants to recognize the godness of God and the otherness of him and respond rightly, well, that's a person who's going to be in God's word. And so what does God's word does? It provides for us the illumination we need for the steps and choices before us, and it provides the correction, it provides the training, it provides the competency, and it equips us. So God the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God, is doing something in us as we spend time in prayer and in the Word of God to protect us. Well, thirdly, over the long haul, we find greater joy, pleasure, and satisfaction and have zero guilt when obeying God. And we need that opening phrase, over the long haul, because it should just be recognize that sin is pleasurable. I mean, it, it, it can feel good to give in, whatever it might be. And there, there, is, there is a reality there. I mean, growing up, I think what we heard in youth group was sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. And then a few people had it, and they're like, wait a minute, this is great. And then everybody else was just confused. Because in the fleeting, in the here and now, yeah, there's pleasure there. What's this look like over the long haul? Over the long haul, there's joy. There's pleasure. There's satisfaction. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no remorse. You make known the paths of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, God, when he asks us to obey, isn't trying to keep us from good things. He's trying to lead us to greater things. And he knows where those greater things are. And he knows what the path of life to get there looks like. How does... The one who pleases God escaped this trap. Fourthly, there's encouragement from other believers to keep pressing on and follow Jesus. The one who's following the Lord, the one who fears the Lord, the one who's seeking to obey the Lord, the one who's in the Lord's word, who's praying, is probably then the one who's going to spend time with the Lord's people. This is part of what God intended his body to do for one another. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God's people encourage God's people to follow well. And this is one of the most tremendous points of why church membership should be considered. Because it is a formal communication between you and the other believers in your local church that says, I'm for you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to lean on you to encourage me. And God designed his body to work that way. The one who pleases him, the one who follows him, escapes these traps but the sinner is taken Solomon continues to tell us what he finds and does so in verse 27 and says behold this is what I found says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme or the explanation of things which my soul has sought repeatedly but I have not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. Here I think we see 
one of Solomon's, Solomon's most explicit phrases that explains the lack of satisfaction and fulfillment in regards to his choices with these thousand women. Sure, he could have been more clear, but I don't think it takes a whole lot of thinking to see that Solomon tried to find satisfaction through and with these women. Now, it might have been economic advancement. I mean, these were princesses. They would have, they would have come perhaps from foreign kings and dignitaries. Perhaps these were political alliances. Perhaps he's trying to advance the kingdom. Perhaps he wants to add wealth and riches. Perhaps he's just trying to fulfill sexual desires. And he could never do so. But he actually concludes that he found no one. And his wives actually led his heart away. There's a theory in art and in philosophy regarding art. It's called the theory of aesthetics. It's a theory that states what is true is what determines what is beautiful and ethical. It's a profound theory if you think about it. That what is true determines what's beautiful and ethical. And it's something for us to significantly consider. Especially as we live in 2017 America. Because you don't have to look real far to find books or movies or other forms of entertainment that, if we're honest, are, are not outright pornographic forms of entertainment. But we have to ask ourselves, is it true? If it's not true, then it's not beautiful. It's not ethical. Paul says something very similar in Philippians 4. Put your mind on these things. Whatever is true. And as believers, we, we need to pause and consider that. Because you can read books that aren't pornographic, but have questionable scenes and scenarios in them that are not true. They don't reflect God's standard of truth. Virtually every rated R movie that comes out now has nudity in it. That's not reflecting God's standard of truth. How as believers could we take what Paul writes in Philippians 4, put your mind on whatever's true, and then be content to just find ourselves watching, purchasing, renting, whatever it looks like, content that does not resemble God's truth. And folks, those body parts on the screen, those are that person's real body parts. They're not wearing a naked suit over clothing. And they're doing those scenes at the direction of a director off camera telling them where to put hands and legs and body parts. And, and, and we, just, we just go and consume it and act like it's no big deal. So we've been so desensitized to some of these issues. But a carelessness and a callousness will continually lead us down a road that does not honor the Lord. It's not the path of life. And it's what you see in Solomon's life. For as good as he started in the Song of Psalms, that's a good book. Married people should read that book. It's a good book. For as good as he started, he ended terribly. And there was 999, at least, compromises along the way in this area. And exactly what the Lord said would happen, happened. 
It's fascinating in the training process of the NFL. They get all the rookies together, the guys straight out of college, who all of a sudden go from never doing laundry and smelling terrible and not getting meals and fed and working like dogs for a college coach to now having millions of dollars at their disposal. They feel like they need to get these guys in a room and teach them what to do now with all of the money they have. Because you cash in million-dollar checks and you went from poor, I can't buy a pizza on a Friday night, to I've got more money now than I know what to do with. They, they bring them together and they try to give them some training. One of the guys they bring in to do this training is by the name of Herm Edwards, and he's a bit of a famous coach in, in the league, and he now can be seen on ESPN commentating on pregame, postgame type stuff. But he has this advice for these rookies in the NFL, that they should get one house. They don't need two houses. You can't live in two houses at one time. You get one house, and you be content with one house. You get one car because you can't drive two cars at one time. You just get one car. You don't need a whole garage full of cars. You need one car. You get one watch. You get one necklace. He, was even, he went even far to say you don't need to be looking like Mr. T. You just need one. And one of the very last things that he says is you get one wife. You get one girlfriend. And we maybe could debate him on that last point. But his point is, Guys, you're going to be tempted to go find a whole bunch, a whole bunch of houses, a whole bunch of cars, a whole bunch of jewelry, a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of women, and there is nothing faster that will undermine your money and wealth now and even ability to perform in this league. Herm Edwards sounds a lot like Solomon. It sounds a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon himself, in regards to the cherishing that wives are, says this in Proverbs 12, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And there's just this disconnect, and we don't get it, and I don't get it, because he has these awesome things to say, and then he has this pattern of his life that he just compromised in, and he found himself at a very bad end. King Lemuel in Proverbs 31 says, an excellent wife who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. I think Solomon knew a few things about crowns. He probably had a few crowns as king. King Lemuel probably knew a few things about precious stones. And here these men are saying, the woman God gives you, that's where you're satisfied. The promise of every sexual and moral revolution has always been freedom. Nobody's going to tell us what to do with our bodies, where to do it, when to do it, how to do it. We are going to claim complete self-autonomous freedom. That was the claim of the sexual revolutions in the 60s. That's the claim of the current moral and sexual revolution we find ourselves in the midst of right now. It has always been freedom. However, those who engage ultimately only ever find bondage and captivity. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ sets those in bondage free. And he gives them what their soul actually most deeply and desperately craves and wants. And he doesn't give them poor substitutes to settle for. And in verse 29 of our text, Solomon strikes on some of that reality and why men and women seem so quick to try and just ignore God's word, his exhortation, his advice. And he writes this, see this alone I found, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now that word schemes is not the word explanation. It's a completely different word. Our English translators translate them the same. It's not a bad word. It's not a poor choice of words. But it's the idea not of finding a schematic that gives you the breakdown of something. It's the idea of trying to scheme your way and con your way. I thought about it this way when I was a little kid. I was always trying on Sunday mornings during church to scheme somehow 
for my friend to come over to my house or for me to go over to my friend's house. Some of you experience this, and they come running up to you, and they've got the plan, right? They have schemed together. That's this word. God made man upright. I think there's a reference there to Adam and Eve in their sinlessness. And they've just sought out many schemes. That inherently because of our sin, because of how we're born, and the depravity of our sin nature, we are just very bent to ignoring what God says. We're ignoring and we're bent to ignore the truth and the beauty of what He reveals as good and right. And you can see that play out in Solomon's life. And so in that sense, if you are seeking, because of discontent, sex to somehow fulfill something in your life, it most certainly will disappoint. But if you're playing it and obeying the Lord... I think you probably find quite the opposite. So what do we do? Well, I think first and foremost as believers, we we cling to Jesus. And at the cross, we surrender our lives. We keep running back there. We work hard at fighting sin and we take temptation seriously. We don't want to be content with allowing a little bit of sin to be there and to entertain a little bit and to compromise here and there because those compromises and that little bit of contentment with the presence of sin is going to lead us to places of compromise that we're going to be very shocked to find ourselves in. We cling to one another. Part of the body of Christ is designed to provide the encouragement needed to follow well. God made it that way. And I'm leaning on you for that encouragement. You can lean on me and we cling to one another. And lastly, we repent and confess unconfessed sin to God and those that we have sinned against. And that repentance is going to take some action takes getting rid of the filth that may be in your house, on your computer, in your DVD collection. Not even the stuff maybe that we automatically think pornographic and filthy, but the, the, the stuff that's small compromises. We take these things seriously. We work hard at following well because it's God who works in us. To empower us to do just that. So let's stand and sing and just turn our focus and attention onto the cross. Where his blood ran red. And where our sins can be washed white.